Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Wendy Fishman and Howard Gardner about the new book, The Real World of College, What Higher Education Is and What It Can Be why higher education in the United States has lost its way, and how universities and colleges can focus sharply on the core mission. Fishman and Gardner offer cogent recommendations for how every college can become a community of learners who are open to change as thinkers, citizens, and human beings. Wendy, Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Me also, thank you. So, Wendy, how are you? How's your week going? So far, so good. It's summertime here and it's beautiful outside, a little hot, but all is good. And Howard, what about you? Um, Yeah, I've just come back from seeing my children and grandchildren. Another child is coming up this evening, so it's been a family time. But I can't pretend that uh, we're living in a time that's filled with good news. It's a pretty depressing time in the country and in the, and in the world. Um, but we try, to do, we try to do the best we can. You know, we've been tossed the, uh, the cards of 2022, and we have to deal with those. Mm, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, Wendy, can you tell us, what do you do? Uh, um, sure. So I uh, work at Project Zero, which is a research center at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And Howard and I do social science research. Um, I'm probably, just in terms of my own history, probably unlike most others who participate in this kind of scholarly research, um, I graduated from college with a Bachelor of Arts in History, um, and I thought I wanted to teach because I loved school, and I liked to learn, and I liked the challenge of academics. I was not a straight-A student, Um, But I actually didn't go on to even a higher education than my Bachelor of Arts. And that's in part because I never wanted to leave my role at Project Zero, where I've now been for 27 years. Um, So I think that makes me probably unusual for other compared to others who do this kind of work. But um, shortly after I got to Project Zero, I began working with Howard and never wanted to do anything different. I've been incredibly fortunate that he's been a role model and a real mentor for me in every way, in terms of how to be a professional, how to carry out the kind of academic research, how to lead and be a part of a team. And so I never wanted to give up the opportunity. And I like to say that I have an advanced degree in the School of Howard Gardner, um, and probably am as prepared as anyone else who has a higher degree from any other institution. So that's a a little bit about me. And Howard, what is your background? Well, Wendy's been overly kind. Um, I'm a more traditional academic, uh, uh, trained in in psychology and other social sciences. And for many years, I taught at uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And for many years, I directed the research project that Wendy described called Project Zero, it's a funny name, Uh, but what we try to do is develop ideas in education and 
to give them a push in the right direction. So we don't run schools or museums or businesses, but we try to come up with ideas which will be useful for those entities. Um, Wendy and I, as she mentioned, have worked together for a long time, mostly trying to understand um, how to help um, young people become better educated and better human beings, uh, what we call good workers and good citizens. And uh, it was that interest uh, decades ago, which actually led to the, the study, which uh, Wendy is now the senior author of the study of, of college called The Real World of College. So Wendy, you really mentioned that you have very interesting sort of career pathway. Do you have anything to say to our student listeners and early career researchers from your experience with, especially with mentors, for example? That's, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I would say if you find a good mentor, one that you can learn from and grow um, to value that and not, you know, be looking to necessarily move on to the next one or the next job or what you think might look better on paper, um, because I've learned so much from, from Howard and, and also from other people at Project Zero. Um, and, you know, I would just say that um, it's funny to me that while we have written a book about higher education, and of course I went to college myself, um, I was a first gen student actually. Um, and I know Howard was too. So that was kind of a um, funny thing for both of us, just in terms of our own backgrounds. Um, but I, you know, I think that um, it, we don't need to let other um, people define for us what that means. And so I, you know, I never really thought of myself as a first-gen student. It kind of hit me much later on in life um, when I began sort of working and, and learning about other people and their own backgrounds, but I never let it um, stop me or become a challenge for me. I just, I sort of um, you know, just wanted to continue with what I was interested in and, and worked really hard to overcome any, you know, challenge. And I didn't let it define me. And Howard, you're one of those rare cases where you're excellent researcher and also an excellent mentor and teacher. How are you able to wear both of those hats? <clears throat> well, Wendy, Wendy again has been overly kind to me. Um, I've learned tremendous amount from her and from other people who work with me for a long period of time. So it's it's much more um, equivalent rather than uh, top down. Um, in an earlier uh, writing of mine, I talk about mentors, tormentors, anti-mentors, and fragmentors. Um, it's nice if you have a mentor, somebody who you know you are sim simpatico with and whom you can learn from. But we also learn from people who we don't want to be like. I call those tormentors or anti-mentors, and probably everybody can talk about teachers, family members, bosses, who say, my goodness, I don't want, like, want to be like them. Um, and then I think a term which is um, helpful nowadays is fragmenter, um, especially if you go to school in Europe of an earlier time, you usually have to work with one professor, the professor, and if he or she likes you and they're usually a he, it's fine. And if they don't, uh, it's very bad. I think in the United States, uh, 
we're lucky that you can work with various people. And as Wendy mentioned, she's worked with several people um, uh, and has learned from them and takes the good parts from them and can toss the parts out that, that, aren't, that aren't so good. So fragmenting is a kind of a 20th, 21st century American phenomenon. And I think it's useful for students everywhere. Don't define yourself just by being like one person being mentored or being against one person being anti-mentored, take the best features from uh, a variety of, of people. Um, mm, some wonderful insight from both of you. Thank you. So your latest book is The Real World of College, what higher education is and what it can be. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Sure. Um, so as Howard mentioned earlier, we've been conducting research on the development of young people how they understand work and their own educational experiences um, for more than 20 years on something that we call the good project. Um, and through that earlier research, we had begun to talk with college students on various campuses about how they understood the purpose of college in terms of what they want to get out of it, how it might prepare them to be future, what we call good workers and professionals and citizens of the world. And in those conversations and interviews that we had with college students, we were struck that so many of them had never thought about the purpose of college. They never really thought about what they wanted to get out of it, um, other than a degree to get a job. And some of the students that we talked with even complained that their school had funneled them into professions, encouraging fields like business and finance rather than others like education or public service. And so we wanted to um, talk with students at different institutions, disparate institutions to, to understand what they thought about the purpose of college. Um, we also wanted to talk with many other stakeholders. Um, and so for a period of 10 years, we carried out intensive research on 10 different campuses, interviewing not only students, even though they were half of our sample, but also faculty and administrators, as well as trustees, parents of current students, young alums, um, and I think I mentioned trustees and job recruiters. And um, we talked with these, all these individuals um, for about an hour or an hour and a half asking um, broad questions about higher education and their own perspective so that we could understand what was important to them. One of the things that we often say is we listened very carefully to what people said, but also what they didn't say. And so while we had questions in mind, we tried not to be directive because we wanted to, to understand what was on their mind. And that's what makes our study and the book unusual. All right. So let's dive in. So then if we start with the very basics and just to make sure everybody's on the same page. So where do we start? What is the common view of the college and higher education in U.S.? Um, so I'll start and Howard, please feel free to pipe in. Um, but as we describe in the book, the bulk of students that we spoke with and we we interviewed a thousand students across 10 different schools. 500 of them were first-year students, and 500 of them were graduating students. We found that the bulk of students and their parents 
believe that higher education is more of a transactional experience. And that is that the purpose of college is really to secure a job, to move on to the next stage. And we have nothing against jobs, but we believe that students with this view are missing the point of a higher education, which we believe is to learn and not just to earn. Um, and for most students, it's the last opportunity that they'll have at developing intellectual capacities, something that we call higher education capital, which we might discuss later, an ability to attend, analyze, reflect, connect and communicate on issues of importance. So certainly while there are many institutions and undergraduate institutions in the United States that focus on professions, um, for example, undergraduate law schools or business schools, journalism, even pharmaceutical schools, that's fine. Um, but in the United States, if you claim to be a school of what we say focuses on liberal arts and science, um, that's what you need to deliver on. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that the common view in the United States um, sees that liberal arts and science is an important part of an education. And um, I don't think that student, the bulk of students who are attending those institutions see it that way either. Yeah, um, I, let me um, underscore what Wendy is saying. Uh, because I think some of the people who are listening to this may not be familiar with the American system. Um, first of all, it's important to distinguish between colleges and universities. Um, universities are large institutions of higher education, which contain professional schools like law, medicine, education, architecture, and so on. College is the word that we preserve for typically four years before people enter professions, where they're supposed to, as Wendy says, survey widely what we call liberal arts and sciences. This is not a form of education that exists in most other countries, except uh, in England. People will know Oxford and Cambridge as places where you also don't rush into a profession. Um, the other thing which um, is very much in Wendy, in my mind, is that in the United States today, people are very critical of colleges, not universities, but colleges. That's both because they're quite expensive and there's reason to be critical about that, but also because they're seen as places where uh, students are moved to the left, become politically more liberal, uh, even more radical. And so there's a lot of antipathy toward colleges. Um, but one of the things we try to do in the real world of college is to describe which things really do characterize American students and becoming radical is not one of them and which things don't, uh, don't describe American college students. The other thing which is probably more surprising to Wendy than to me is that there's been at least as much interest in our study of American colleges outside of these countries, abroad, uh, in Europe, in Asia, Latin America, than there is in the United States. Um, we could speculate endlessly why that's the case. Um, one reason is I think people have a feel they have a lot to learn from the United States. And in some areas, that's true. But Wendy and I feel we also have a lot to learn from higher education in other countries. And in fact, with a, a Chinese historian, a historian of China, Bill Kirby, we're working on a book about 
innovative ideas in education around the world. So we'd love for people to read The Real World of College and to learn what we've learned, but we also feel many answers exist in other places. In America, the United States certainly isn't the, uh, the last word in what good education is. <clears throat> So with regards to methodology that you used, what kind of ways and approaches um, did you employ and what kind of samples were you looking for? Well, those are good questions. Um, so we, we carried out qualitative research, um, even though in our analysis, we analyzed the data with both quantitative and qualitative methods. Um, all of our research was carried out by using qualitative um, in-depth interviews. So as I mentioned, we sat down with each individual for about an hour or an hour and a half. We had 40 plus questions that um, ranged um, across different categories about purpose of college, um, obstacles and challenges in college, um, opportunities and what students want to get out of it. Um, I'm sorry, all individuals perceptions of what students should get out of it, and also views of higher education in general. Um, so, and these, these um, interviews were semi-structured, as I mentioned. And so we were not asking people about particular topics or particular challenges and asking them about those. We listened very carefully, again, to what they said and what they didn't say. So we guided the conversation, but did not lead people to talk about certain things. And that's really important because our study is very different than most higher education studies, which is based on survey research, which does ask participants about um, very specific kinds of um, questions and topics. Um, so if something was important to a student or to any participant, they, they discussed it. And if it wasn't, they didn't. So again, we could, when we analyzed our data, we could look to see what was mentioned and what wasn't and, and how it was talked about. We um, spent about five years collecting our data. Uh, we traveled to campuses on, in person. We spent a lot of time on each campus. We interviewed most of the campus adults in person and we got to know the campus. We spent time in the campus center, um, in the gym, in you know, the art centers, any, any that walked around, went on tours um, and information sessions because we wanted to understand the context of the campus. We did uh, you know, observe students in classrooms, but also how they interacted with one another. Um, and after about five years of doing that, we we spent almost the same amount of time analyzing the data. And believe me, we could have even spent double that, <laughs> uh, but we used a very rigorous, um, very rigorous methodology to analyze the data because it, it does take a lot of time and a lot of people resources to make sense of qualitative data. And so we had a coding scheme um, in which we um, analyzed both specific answers and responses to specific questions that we had, but also we looked holistically and um, came up with themes and patterns um, and looked across interviews. And we also did word analyses of each interview and across our constituencies and institutions. So it take, took us almost double the time to analyze our data as it did to collect it. 
And why did you want to collect data from people who were not students, uh, other stakeholders like parents and uh, funders? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, we interviewed faculty and administrators and also parents, job recruiters, trustees, um, and young alums, actually, those who had graduated um, five to 10 years um, before we had interviewed them, because we wanted to understand the full landscape of what the major stakeholders of higher education thought about it. A study like this um, had not been carried out before, and we didn't just want to base our findings on students. We wanted to understand how students' views would compare to other views. And in fact, one of our major findings is how similar students are to their parents, but how different students' views are about college from faculty and administrators. And that's important because presumably students spend most of their time with faculty and administrators, but don't necessarily see things in the same way um, or understand what the purpose of college is in the same way. Um, and they're, they're more on the same page with their parents who, um, especially if students are living on a residential campus, they don't see every day. So that was interesting to us and important for faculty and administrators to know. Uh, let, let me make a, a couple of different points here um, in addition. One is that in earlier studies, we found it was much easier to be effective if the various stakeholders were aligned. Uh, they basically felt the same way about things. And so we were very much cognizant in this study of where there was a misalignment of the sort that Wendy described when faculty and administrators and staff want to think about college one way and students think about it very different way. Unless you can get these two parties aligned better, uh, it's not going to work. Now, this wouldn't be true in a dictatorial system where you know, the, the, the Wizard of Oz decides how to run on colleges and you can like it or lump it. Um, but in the United States, which is much more of a capitalist society where people choose schools and may switch from one school to the other, uh, it's very important that schools uh, have, a, have, a, have a, a message in which there's general agreement. And as we point out in the book, that's often not the case. Um, I also wanted to underscore the point that Wendy made about having conversation where we let the other person take the lead. If you just read American newspapers 10 years ago, you would have thought everybody was worried about cancel speech uh, you know, and about uh, protests on campuses um, and about what it means to be politically correct. We almost never ran into those comments by students. It wasn't on their mind. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, things that uh, uh, we hadn't been prepared for, issues of mental health um, challenges, issues of feeling of alienation, of not belonging, were things that weren't even on our radar screen in 2012 when we began the study. Now, certainly mental health issues would be higher on everybody's radar screen because of the pandemic, but our study data collection was completed before the pandemic undertake. So it's very important in doing exploratory research of the sort that Wendy and I did, not to go in with a bunch of expectations and to try to confirm them or disconfirm them, but rather ask open questions like, what do you like at college? What do you think is the biggest problems um, on college? If you could change three things, what would they be? Uh, and only after we got answers like this would we follow up. 
So as we've already implied, um, half of the students in liberal arts schools think that they should go to college so they can get a job. So then we say to the students after they say, well, I'm going there to get a job. What happens if in three years the job disappears? Now the students has no way of answering that question that shows the student has really thought about this. It's just a kind of a, a wisdom or stupidity that's been passed on <laughs> by the media because what's the point of getting preparing for a college job when that job disappears? So, but Wendy and I are both saying it's very important in research, not always to go in with a hypothesis that you want to test, but rather to listen with open mind uh, as Wendy says, go on tours, visit, visit restaurants on campus, go into campus shops, sit in on courses, see what happens, be as much an anthropologist as a sociologist, um, and then in our book, we do have recommendations, but we separate out the recommendations quite sharply from what we observe. So you might not agree with the, res with the recommendations, but you can't dismiss the finding, for example, that American students use the word I 11 times more often than they use the word we. And when you remind me, what's, what's the ratio with parents? Uh, the the ratio of parents is actually double that, and um, I'm just I'm just looking actually right here. Yeah, the parents use the word I thirteen times the amount that they use the word we, and interestingly, young alums use I twenty two times um, I, uh, twenty two times they use I over we. So. Uh, this does show that as people get older, I even becomes more pronounced than we. And I know that you're going to ask a question about uh, some some of the current work that we're engaged in now, and I can talk about that later. But it's we're trying to nudge or nudge students to think more about we than I. I would also say, and I'm willing to bet my reputation, meager as it is on this, if you were to carry out the study in Japan, you would have nothing like that I-we ratio. You'd have more we's than I's. And that tells you something about both countries. Uh, you can draw whatever conclusion you want. <laughs> we really found, um, you know, this, this speaks to our, our major finding that students are really obsessed with themselves. They're very consumed by their grades um, and overall GPAs and resume building, also carrying out all this all this perfection um, effortlessly, not even making it look like they have to work hard to do it because they feel as if they'll be more a more promising job candidate um, if they reach these extrinsic measures measures of success. Um, and you know, students are really consumed by how they fare over college in terms of their own belonging, their own mental health, and this own perfection and, and don't really see their learning um, as something that should be contributed to the world or you know how we think about world problems um, and why that's important and an important piece of college. That is so interesting. It's uh, It also sounds like it's completely con contrasting the purpose of the college as it is, as a learning for its own sake, isn't it? Um, we think so. And as I said at the beginning, we, we really found in our study that students are really missing the point of college. And um, we also find that 
you know, the sector of higher education in many ways has lost its way. Um, and, you know, it's trying to be too, too many, too many things to, to different people um, and trying to please its customer. And the customer wants this transactional experience and wants the promise of internships and jobs. And, you know, we found of those that we surveyed um, in the United States that colleges are, are bending over backwards to please these people rather than um, being clear about what the mission of higher education ought to be. You know, when, when, we, when, we, when we talk to various audiences that uh, are inclined to be skeptical about what we're saying, uh, we often say, well, why shouldn't Google or Goldman Sachs, that being an investment company, Google, of course, a technology company, why shouldn't they just open their own universities and take in students who want to go work for Goldman Sachs and Google? And why not just shut down uh, Harvard or Princeton or Swarthmore or Stanford? These are well-known schools. And of course, people in colleges and universities get very upset. We don't want to be competing with Google. We don't want to compete with Goldman Sachs or with McDonald's. We're doing something very different. You say, oh, what is that? And then they say, oh, my goodness, <laughs> we've lost sight of that. So, Wendy, you were quite hands-on in this research. Were there any interviewees that really stood out to you, something they were saying that you were really surprised with? Um, so many. It really was a privilege to be able to listen to so many people and their own personal stories. Um, and as I said at the beginning, that's, that's really what intrigues me about social science research is, is being able to have a window into people's lives and their perspectives on things. Um, but I'll just talk about two students and Howard, you might you might have other students that you, you can think about or other participants, but um, one was a student I'll call Alex, um, who went to a highly selective school and was sort of felt that higher education was meant to be a transformational experience. He wanted to um, investigate his own beliefs and values, um, think about his own background and where he came from, but he wanted his learning to, to help him to reflect on the kind of person he wants to be um, and think about how he might develop those intellectual capacities, but really felt that peers at his school and his institution were transactional. Um, and as a result, he didn't feel like he belonged. And this is a, a student at a residential, highly selective school and sort of felt like he was on his own island. Um, he was involved in neuroscience and, and students around him cared much more about grades than they did about learning um, and was really sort of felt disappointed by the college experience. Um, and I'm gonna contrast that with another student who I'll call Sarah, who was at a lower selectivity school um, that talked about the importance of graduating and doing well, but really felt that the opportunity to go to school, she was the first student in her family to go to school, uh, was this education was an opportunity to transform her life and change the course of her whole family's life. And in many ways, um, didn't take advantage, or I'm sorry, didn't um, miss the opportunity that higher education offered her 
to really transform. And so I talk about these two students because I think um, many people might presume that students who go to highly select selective schools or campuses um, might be better off or have more opportunities and students at lower selectivity schools don't. And really part of the study flipped some of those assumptions. Um, Sarah, who I described, we, we coded her as being transactional, but to be transformational, which is very different um, than some of the trans purely transactional students at many other schools who really from day one wanted to go to college to get the job, to move on, to go to the best law firm, the best investment banking firm, and didn't look either way at what else college had to offer. That's very different than some students at the lower selective selectivity schools that felt that they, yes, they did need to graduate, but they wanted to, that college education to transform their lives. So those two stood out to me. I don't know, Howard, if, if any interviews in particular stood out to you. Well, um, two ideas came to me as, as you were talking about that question. One is that uh, um, I interviewed all the college presidents and they were nice and uh, cordial, um, but I felt in general, I was getting a sales pitch. They had answered the questions or had prepared answers so much that uh, I didn't learn much from the, from the presidents with one exception. And then, then I learned that that president was leaving at the end of the year. So he or she felt that they could be honest. So the, the, the presidential interviews were, uh, were disappointing. Um, the other uh, thing that occurred to me with this question is we ask everybody, um, if you could give one book to a graduating senior, somebody who was finishing the college, what book would it be? And we asked this of all 2000 people. So not just the students, but the parents and the faculty and so on. Now, the first thing is that an embarrassing number of students couldn't think of any book. And since we were doing some of these on FaceTime, Zoom, you could see them looking around the room for ideas. And that was kind of depressing. We didn't want to make them feel bad. So we said, well, you could mention a, a movie or a documentary or a podcast or something. So a lot of people can't think of a book at all. Uh, the second thing was how many of them were self-help books, uh, you know, how to get better at something, how to get a job. Uh, we ran into relatively little philosophical writings or uh, um, literary fiction, the kind of thing which... Uh, you know, you would hope that people at college would you know, talk about reading you know, Shakespeare or Gibbon, Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire or um, you know, poetry of, of Yeats, something like that. Um, but we didn't rank people well if they mentioned Shakespeare and we didn't flunk them if they mentioned uh, how to uh, succeed in business without trying. We look at the reasons why they, they like something. And so a student could mention you know, Moby Dick or, um, or Middlemarch, very high prestige literary fiction. But if they just said, oh, because it's very significant, very interesting, they wouldn't get a, a high grade. But if they mentioned a, a, a book for children or for young people, but they came up with a very good reason, they would get a high score. So we weren't, we weren't being snobs. We were trying to listen carefully to what people said. And when Wendy keeps... Um, referring to what qualitative research means. It means you don't know in the beginning what your hypotheses are, 
you listen very carefully to what people tell you and what they don't tell you. And then you try to create scoring systems like the, the four kinds of students um, or the, uh, the higher education capital that Wendy referred to. The scoring systems try to capture for the rest of the world what it is that we learned, what they would have learned if they'd gone on the 2000 interviews. But it did take five years and a lot of money to do all those interviews. <clears throat> And then coming to more social aspect of the college experience. So you already mentioned some of these uh, topics like mental health, belonging, and also inclusion, discrimination. So what did students and other stakeholders say about that? Um, So as we describe in the book, mental health was definitely the biggest concern among um, all students, but actually among all constituencies. It was one of the very few agreements that we found across institutions and across all stakeholder groups was the concern about mental health. Um, And in general, mental health was described as Um, issues of stress and anxiety um, really focused on performance and um, again, resume building and GPA. Um, So while there are many um, intertwining issues of mental health, and I'm not minimizing all of the issues that people do have and and severe problems, um, in general, when we asked students to describe Um, why they thought mental health was the biggest concern. They talked about this overwhelming pressure, stress, and anxiety to perform. Um, Faculty and administrators um, didn't always describe mental health in that way. They they felt that there were other problems like adjusting to campus life, issues um, of belonging, being away from parents and being away from home. Um, They also... Um, faculty and administrators felt that students were concerned about financial issues. Students rarely talked about financial concerns. Um, And that was a big finding for us because so much of our headlines, at least in the United States, are really focused on the financial concerns um, of higher education. And we found that while students chose or selected the particular school um, that they attended because of consideration, financial considerations where they received scholarship money, for example. Once they were in college, they rarely talked about financial concerns weighing on them. Um, and that was, that was very interesting to us. In terms of some of the other social problems um, that students talked about, as Howard mentioned earlier, we did not hear a lot about political correctness. Um, We didn't hear hardly anything about cancel culture. And of course, that term in the United States is more recent, probably even more recent than than our, when, from when our data was collected. But when we look back, we, even if students didn't refer to the particular term of cancel culture, we still don't um, find students complaining about others overinterpreting what they say or misconstruing what they say and being quote unquote canceled. They, they just weren't, that was not a main concern of theirs. But we did hear a lot about the difficulty of navigating 
silos of students. So students talked a lot about how students um, became friendly and formed connections with people who were like them. And they felt comfortable with students that were like them, but it was much harder to connect and communicate with others that were different or might have looked different. And they, um, when we asked them for, as Howard mentioned before, what would be three changes that you would make um, to your curriculum, they wanted more coursework and, and professors to address this more specifically, how to um, cross the, the lines or the boundaries and talk with others that were different from them. And we can't help but to think this is part of a liberal arts and science, a natural part of a liberal arts and science curriculum, but clearly students don't see it that way. Um, and so while they, they complain that they're not getting enough of that, it's essentially for those students in the liberal arts and sciences, what they should be focused on. Um, so that really did stand out to us. Um, and I know I mentioned issues of belonging and alienation, but that was another topic. Again, students did not um, use the terms belonging or alienation. I think we do now, but students didn't mention these, either did faculty and administrators. Um, and we didn't ask specifically about belonging or alienation. So this is another example of how we did not direct people to talk about it, but we did code every interview, student interview, for whether or not they felt like they belonged or were alienated from three different uh, realms, from academics, from other peers, and from their institution. And we do find that overall, a third of students feel alienated from one or more of those three different realms. Um, alienation from peers and institution is more common than alienation from academics. And in the book, we, we compare and contrast some of the different kinds of campuses and how students talked about belonging and alienation across those institutions. I have two quite unrelated points to make, but they occurred to me when Wendy was speaking. One is something which I think Wendy and I haven't actually talked about before. Um, it's interesting that uh, all schools offer all kinds of courses in sociology and history and psychology, which talk about group differences and how people can relate better to one another. And yet students seem unaware of that. Um, I think that's a challenge to what we call onboarding. There's no reason for a college freshmen coming from high school to know that there are courses that help them deal with these things, but it's up to the school, meaning the teachers, the uh, student life leaders, the dormitory counselors, whatever, to say, you know, if you're interested in different kinds of demographies, different kinds of racial and ethnic backgrounds, how to communicate, why don't you take sociology 203 or psychology 105 or anthropology. So I don't blame the students for not knowing their courses. I think it's the job of the institution to onboard, to indicate what kinds of wares, W-A-R-E-S, we, we have to offer. The other thing is that no finding from our uh, study captures more attention from people, particularly from old people, people who are 50 or older, than the mental health findings. Um, and issues that uh, people raises, isn't this just that people are spoiled and shouldn't they grow up and 
not showing up at mental health institutions on, on campus? Why don't they just uh, straighten their back and, 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 and get on with it? Um, and we can't answer that question because we simply don't know how different, how different it is to be an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old now than it was 30 years ago or 60 years ago. We simply don't know why there is this efflorescence, this flowering, this burgeoning of mental health complaints uh, in our colleges and universities. Maybe I shouldn't say complaints, I should say symptomatology. So this is a place where international research is really important. Um, if we were to find the same kind of mental health issues were also arising much more in Europe and in Asia and in Latin America and in Africa, then this is a statement about our times. If on the other hand, it's a peculiar American phenomenon, then it may have to do with students being sheltered too much, being coddled too much, being too much mental health advice available so people don't just straighten their backs up. So we can't, we don't have the power, and I don't think anyone has the power to explain why it is that there's so much mental health concern on American campuses. Um, and I don't think historical uh, information could help us answer that question, but cross-cultural information could. And so we'll be very interested to know in other countries and other parts of the world, particularly with non-residential schools, whether you also have the same um, flowering efflorescence growth uh, increase in, in mental health problems, which are really genuine, even though we don't know to what extent they are susceptible to the kind of help that's needed on our thousands of college campuses, which is, we're not, we don't have that kind of knowledge. Yeah, I think those points are important. I, one other, one other just comment to add on that I should have mentioned is that, again, we didn't ask students um, to, you know, if they had mental health problems, they, when they said that it was the most important, we asked them why. 20% of students, um, talked about their own mental health issues, even though we did not ask. But, um, and I mention this because it's important that even though only 20% shared with us, um, almost every student talked about it as being most important. And so they clearly observed uh, the problems with others, even if they didn't have problems themselves. Yeah, and that's where I find this work so powerful, really, that even maybe some students didn't have the vocabulary like alienation, you know, words like that, but they still have the feelings for it, didn't they? Yes, very much. So then I was wondering from your perspective, what would be your idea of idealized college or university and what are ways to achieve it? Um, well, so that's another good question. And this, this we really talk about um, in the last part of our book when we're giving recommendations to institutions, but and also all the different stakeholders. Um, but we find that the most promising college experiences are from those institutions where there is a single mission of what the institution is about. Um, and that can clearly, as Howard said, onboard students to what that mission is. And that doesn't only happen in the first year of a student's experience, but also continue that onboarding throughout the process of college. And so it's really important for colleges and institutions of higher education 
to make it clear what the mission is, to convey the message in um, website materials, in the tour and information session, in orientation when students first arrive on campus, uh, but also to be reminded in different courses, in different campus activities, um, what the mission is. Uh, right now, most college, in our study, we found that most colleges and universities, and in fact, um, in the book, we have a word cloud of the keywords of all the, of the mission statements of the 10 institutions um, that we studied. And these words are range in topics, very admirable kinds of things, but things like citizenship and globalization and arts and um, jobs and careers and um, colleges can't be all things to all people. So they need to, to um, simplify to a specific mission. We believe that should be about learning and about gaining what we call higher education capital and to clearly convey that to students throughout their entire experience. And if there is another mission like citizenship or ethics or religion or the arts, that needs to be carefully intertwined into the academic program um, and into the mission of the, the college and, or university, because otherwise there's just too much, um, what we would say, up for grabs. Students can decide what's important to them, what's not important to them. Um, and they feel, many students feel like they have to achieve all of the missions if there's too many. And so we really argue again for a single mission and intertwining a secondary mission if there is one. Hmm. And what would be your ideas for uh, the sort of steps we can take in the immediate future? Um, in, in order to, um, to have a mission? Yeah, it changing some of these preconceptions and the outlook. Yeah, well, one, one thing that is probably controversial that we discuss in the book actually is um, a problem that we call project-titus, which is when campuses, again, try to take on too many initiatives, too many centers, too many missions, projects. You know, it's very interesting when we carried out our interviews um, and we might ask about a specific program and most people would never have heard about it um, because there's so there's just so many different competing interests of a college um, and so we would argue that we need to carefully um, select what programs and centers are most important um, which ones are directly tied to the mission of the college or university and help students carry out that mission and perhaps to let go of the other ones <laughs> that aren't as necessary and that also um, take up lots of resources and building space. So I, I think, you know, while it's very hard for an institution to do that, we would argue that that is really important. And, you know, just one other, um, two other ideas about moving forward that are related is one, we found that what's most important for students is the people. 
And really what seems to be the focus of institutions when you go to visit them is the buildings. And so, you know, we wish that the, the people, the faculty, the support staff that's there were featured much more than the fancy cafeteria or gym or athletic center or even art center that's not even uh, used <laughs> on campus. Um, and so that's a definitely a shift in focus for institutions that, that I believe is important. Um, and third for me in terms of moving forward is really helping students before they get to college understand what the purpose of college is because um, really higher education is um, needs to deal with what they get on when students walk onto campus. But I believe that in high school, um, there should be many more conversations about what the purpose of college is, what the mission is of college, um, and preparing students for the experience rather than um, focusing the high school experience on just getting them in. In the United States, it's become, high school has become much more of a exercise in getting students into college and very um, few discussions focus on what is important about college and what, what students should be focusing on and what the mission and purpose is. Yeah, I want to say what Wendy said, but maybe in slightly different words. Um, until the 20th century, um, American schools have basically had a religious mission. Um, they belonged to a particular church where they had a church in their background. And you know, they weren't training people to be ministers, but they were training people to be good Protestants or good Catholics or good Jews or, or whatever. And at the beginning of the 20th century, the religious mission disappeared in most schools. I probably would have been pleased with that. But what I think Wendy and I have learned, not just from our study, but from reading many other studies, is schools that do have a religion, that have a mission like religion, or like the military, uh, West Point or Annapolis, you know why you're there, or historically black schools, even women's colleges, where there's some identifying feature which says, ah, that's why we're in college. What we have now in the 21st century in Harvard, where we are epitomized, is we have shopping malls. Everything's possible. You can try anything, do anything, and nobody really quite knows why they're there. And that's why in our particular hobby horse is what we call higher education capitalism. We haven't talked much about that, but that really means to be able to think better, more clearly, more complexly, as Wendy said, to pay attention, to analyze, to reflect, to connect, to communicate. And we think if colleges don't succeed in doing that, they really should go out of business. And even though on the whole, the seniors, the fourth year students who we studied um, had better higher capital, higher higher ed capital than the first year students, the freshmen, that's good. Schools differed a lot in whether they enhanced higher ed cap. And frankly, if I were the czar and, and the seniors, graduating students, weren't able to attend and analyze and connect and reflect and communicate better than freshmen, I'd say, close you down. Just like if you went to a military academy and you weren't better prepared to fight for white war or make peace, or you went to a religious academy and you were better able to understand the Bible and prayer and so on, I would say, close it down. People don't want to hear that. But uh, in fact, we have thousands of institutions of higher education in the United States a lot of them will close now, and I'd like to have the ones to close down, the ones that aren't achieving what they're promising, rather than ones which just don't have enough money 
to, to, to survive. And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book, The Real World of College, surprised you the most? So we've, we've talked about some of the surprises, uh, but one that we didn't mention that I think is important is how similar students across different campuses are to each other. And I don't think we would have predicted that, and I'm not sure anybody else would either. Um, in interviewing 100 students on 10 very different campuses um, that range in selectivity and in location, in focus, um, and, you know, whether or not they're residential or not, we found that students are much more similar across these schools than they are different. And we find that in what we call the mental models of college, also their goals um, and what they believe the purpose of college is, but also in terms of the words that they use. Um, so, for example, we did talk about I versus we and I being more dominant than than we, but also some of the most frequent words that students used really surprised us. And I'll mention one of them, uh, which is the word help. And while we thought um, when we saw this word that students might be talking about how they're helping others. In fact, when we analyzed how they were using the word help, they were asking for help and um, saying that they needed help. So to me, that's, that's one of the discoveries that surprised us. I'll just mention a couple of others um, that I spoke about, but how similar students are to their parents, more, much more similar to their own parents than they are to faculty and administrators who they presumably are, should be spending more time with on the college campus. Um, and I think for me also just a discovery is how we need to, we can't make assumptions about what people believe. We need to listen very carefully to what they say and what they don't say, because in many ways, um, our findings that we detail in the book are different than what our U.S. newspaper headlines are about. And that was uh, surprising to us. Um, Galena, I'm going to tweak your question slightly. I don't think Wendy and I discussed this publicly before, but I think it might be of interest. Um, I've been very surprised by the reactions to the book, which has been out now for several months. Um, it's gotten a range of reviews and the bench have covered, some positive, some not so positive. That's, I've written a lot of books and that's, that's expected. But what wasn't expected is how many people don't read the book but assume that they know what it says and they don't agree with it. And what's interesting is that it's equally occurs from the left and from the right. From the left, people who are more politically liberal or radical, they attack us because we don't spend a lot of time talking about the differences between males and females, between whites and blacks and Hispanics and Asians, between gays and uh, bisexuals and cisgender uh, and so on. Um, and there are many reasons why we don't, including that it would have taken us 500 years to analyze the data from all those groups, but uh, we just didn't write a book which focused much on individual differences. So that's the criticism from the left, so to speak. The criticisms from the right, from, uh, I'd say, neoliberal and highly capitalistic thinkers, well, it's a business and we're giving people what they want. What's the problem? Uh, forget about this liberal arts stuff. You know, if people want X, Y, Z, and we give them X, Y, Z, like in a good shopping mall, 
that's what business is, that's the American way, please the customer, the customer is always right. So even though we don't like being attracted, I get a certain comfort if we make both the left and the right equally discomfortable, uncomfortable, perhaps we're onto something important that people should be look where we're pointing rather than to bite the finger. But Wendy, we haven't talked about this. Do uh, you have anything you want to say, including dissociating yourself from that? <laughs> right no, I, I think that that's a good point. I, I don't have anything to add. I, you're absolutely right. Maybe you can run another study analyzing the people who read your book. <laughs> and Galena, this may not even just be a, a, a discussion about our book. I mean, I read a lot of newspapers, both Americans and Europeans, and so much of criticism now comes even before people watch, watch the movie carefully or read the novel. They're saying, where are these people coming from politically? In what position should I take? And that's terrible. That, that, that really, that bites at the heart of a liberal arts education, which is to have a broader mind to try to understand what somebody else is saying, even if in the end you don't want to agree with it, rather than assuming that you know, and you're either going to completely endorse it or completely undermine it. So it's very antithetical to a good liberal arts education to presuppose stuff. And I try very hard not to uh, have opinions about books or movies unless I've actually spend some time with them and try to understand where the author is coming from. But that's a lost art in 21st century America. The question is, are you with me or against me? Hmm. All right, so then to finish up on a bit more upbeat note. So for many of us, of course, college, university, it, it happens early in our life where we're still sort of between being a kid, adolescent, and then starting to be adult. So did you, did you have some rowdy or crazy college experiences in your day? Do you have these memories as well? I, that's such a great question, but I'm afraid I'm going to be very boring in my answer <laughs> because I didn't have any like rowdy or crazy memories. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed college, but I have to admit uh, when I think about it, I think I was much more transactional about my college experience than I was transformational. And I'm not proud of that, but it does, um, you know, I do understand um, the, the need for students to become more transformational about college. But again, be, maybe because I was a first gen student, and I didn't have parents that went to college. And then I, I didn't have teachers that really talked about what the importance of college was. I just went and took my classes and felt like I needed to do as well as I should and, and kind of moved on. I didn't really have the um, great, you know, experiences that maybe I wished that I had, you know, I could have had. And so I, I think because of that, I, you know, I feel very strongly about our, our the findings in our book and how we can change that experience um, for other people. But, you know, for me, the most rewarding part was my love of reading and writing and thinking and learning. And, um, you know, I, I never got bored with that, even though my college experience might not have been rowdy. Um, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of, of college. Um, well, I really love college. Um, and people who know me would say, well, you've never left which is literally true because I've been in the Harvard campus for my adult life. Um, but um, two reflections. One is 
many of my classmates in retrospect didn't enjoy college. They liked having a degree from Harvard because it's prestigious, but they were quite unhappy there. But we didn't have the mental health vocabulary then. We might have said somebody was crazy, and I can think of a few people in my dorm who I would have called crazy, but you know, there was, mental health was hardly visible at the time. The other thing which I shared with Wendy and other colleagues is I had a reunion of my college, which is 55 years now, and there was a student there, I'm sorry, a classmate of mine who I didn't really remember, who described himself very much like Wendy as being transactional and just wanting to get the Harvard degree and go on into, into business, into life insurance. But then there was a very brilliant person at our table, uh, an expert on Eastern Europe, and he was discussing um, Ukraine and the attitudes of different countries toward what was going on in Ukraine, because he'd been a diplomat in the foreign service in Eastern Europe. And then this person who said that college was a waste for him said, well, I remember this um, college um, seminar I took as a senior. Um, I don't remember whether it was, it was Reichauer or Fairbanks, but it was comparing Russia and China foreign policy over the last uh, century or so. And Howard Gardner interjected and said, see, college had much more experience and effect on you than you remembered. And he had a smile and agreed because he remembered this course. And I bet you if I was Wendy's psychoanalyst, which I'm not, and I think she would agree that I'm not. And uh, you know, I had her reflect on you know, why she ended up going into education, why she ended up at Project Zero and so on. Uh, you know, she was began working in the arts there. There'd be stuff in her background. It might be her family, it might be her grandfather, it might be the, the good uh, pre-college that she went to. But I bet her four years at Northwestern gave her stuff which she may not be very conscious of now. And I should also say, Wendy has four kids, three of whom are either finished or in college, and the fourth one is headed there soon. And she's been very careful not to brainwash them, but they're all doing very well. And I'm happy for that. <laughs> it's true. Um, I will just put in one more sort of plug for our study or our book, which is relevant to your question, Galena. Um, one of our interns is now working with us full-time um, Katie Abramowitz wrote a blog that's posted on our website. Um, so the title of it is something like Taking Advantage of College Before It's Too Late. Um, and her experience being an intern on our project helped her to think more about what the purpose of college ought to be and what she was not doing that she wanted um, to, to do in her senior year of college. And so, um, you know, if there are students listening to this, I would say that they should read her blog because it was a very rich reflection of her experiences work, um, working on our project and thinking very differently about the college experience as a result. And, and where, Wendy, where, Wendy, can they reach our blog? So we have a website for our book and our higher education study, um, which is www.therealworldofcollege.com. And on that website, um, we have a blog. We probably have about 40 blogs that are posted, maybe even more. Um, we describe our book in more detail. Um, we also have a survey um, that we developed as a result of our, of our study that institutions or individuals can use um, to investigate some of the topics that we've talked about. Well, this has been a really insightful discussion and really many things to think about. So then what's next for you? 
Um, so one of our findings that we actually didn't talk about, um, but because of the um, prevalence of I over we, um, it might not be surprising, is how little sensitivity students have for any kinds of ethical issues. And um, if people are interested, they could look up the good project. Um, Dot org, which is the overarching um, research study that Howard and I were working on um, for many years, for over 20 years um, before this higher education study. But we're particularly interested in how to develop sensitivity um, to ethics and how people think about ethical dilemmas and hopefully how they'll behave differently when they confront an ethical dilemma, not only in college, but also um, as they enter the world of work. And so we are, um, we have been trying out an approach on four different college campuses about how to help or encourage students um, to recognize ethical dilemmas and to really think deeply about them. This involves keeping portfolios on um, for the entire academic year, um, which essentially are journal journals that students keep. And we also talk with them four times throughout the year to help them to reflect on uh, these different ethical dilemmas that they confront. And our initial findings are that this approach is very um, promising and useful for, for us and for students to increase their sensitivity to ethical dilemmas. And we hope that in the future, we'll be working with more college campuses um, if there are institutions that are interested, they should definitely contact us. Our contact information is on the website. Um, but we hope to ultimately intertwine this approach into current structures on campus. And so that's not something extra, but it really is a natural part of what campuses do. I guess I, sh I, sh I should weigh in, though. What's next is a different meaning for somebody uh, who's quite senior like me. Um, but I mentioned in passing that with Bill Kirby, a scholar of Chinese education, uh, Wendy and I are co-editing a book on innovations in higher education around the world. Because while we think there are lessons from the United States, we're certain there are lessons from many other parts of the world. And so if people who are listening to this uh, podcast um, are prompted with anything they've heard or with any ideas of their own, particularly if they come from other countries, they should let us know because we're very, very open to expanding our own notion of different worlds of higher education, not just the United States in 2012, but what can be learned from different kinds of higher education institutions in different parts of the world. Because uh, as is famously said, if you think, uh, education is expensive, consider the alternative of non-education. And so many of our world, world's problems come because people aren't able to think about them in intelligent ways and then act upon them in ways which are constructive rather than destructive. So a lot of the future of the plan depends upon the quality of education in general and higher education in particular, whether the ideas come from China or Brazil or Turkey or Finland, um, uh, in the Galapagos Islands, we'd like, we'd like to know about them and try to learn from them. Excellent. And we would encourage our listeners to reach out. So thank you to both of you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you so much for having us and allowing us to talk about our study and our book. Yeah, and I, I have thank, double thanks for Galena because she's been exposed to my writing for another session on, in my memoir. But uh, uh, this has been fun to hear uh, Wendy and to try to think of something to say that she hasn't said already quite well. <laughs> Brilliant.